0: Thank you for joining us for the Lafayette Church of Christ Sermon Podcast. Please join us each week as we listen to lessons given on Sunday mornings at the Lafayette Church of Christ. Well, amen to that song, uh, I, I'm told, I don't remember, but I'm told that that was the song uh, my mother sang over me when I was a little baby and a little boy. So I think that's the, the song I've known the longest in my life probably. and. The message uh, certainly remains true today. Uh, well, good morning, church. Uh, it is it's good to, to see all of you, uh, the the faithful remnant uh, that are that are here in St. Louis on on Thanksgiving weekend. I also want to welcome our, our guests, our visitors, of course, and and uh, our, our brothers and sisters joining us online. I assume we, we have a number of uh, travelers that are are able to hop on, which is a neat thing. I uh, hope you had a good Thanksgiving. Uh, to to echo some of what Jackie said. Uh, the holidays are, are the best time of the year uh, for, for some of us and a difficult time of the year for others of us, and, uh, and some of us are in, in between on that. So uh, we certainly all have a lot to be thankful for, and uh, the last few days I was praying over many of you and, and, and your families and just giving thanks for the, the spiritual family we have here at Lafayette. So I hope, hope you had a good Thanksgiving uh, re- regardless of, of what you're facing in your life right now. Uh, on the, uh, the, the Christian calendar uh, that, that the majority of Christians have kept up with for many centuries, uh, this is actually the, the first Sunday of the new year, so to speak. Uh, it's the first of four Sundays of, of Advent, uh, which is the first season of, of the Christian calendar each, each year. And so this morning, what I, what I want to do is, is highlight very briefly what Advent is all about as, as a brief little reminder and then we're going to jump right into our, our first of uh, four passages in what will be kind of like a little mini-series from, from the Hebrew prophets. So the season of Advent traditionally focuses uh, on the, the coming of Jesus Christ or the advent of Jesus Christ from, from three different perspectives. You have the past perspective, the future perspective, and the present perspective. So concerning the past perspective, which is the one that you're more likely familiar with, the church basically joins with the Old Testament people of God in anticipating and looking forward to and waiting for the first coming of Jesus Christ in the incarnation. Again, this is the most well known perspective of Advent. It's basically a, a build up to Christmas time when the church remembers the entrance of Jesus into the world when, when he is born. And so this is why you get some of the ad, Advent calendars, or I think we have an Advent pillow. Uh, where, you're, where you're counting down the days to Christmas. It's, it's a build-up to Christmas where the church tries to identify with the Old Testament people of God and, and waiting for the coming of the Messiah. And, and they had to wait for that for many, many centuries, of course. During this, uh, this time of Advent, though, the, the church also anticipates not just the first coming of Jesus, but also the second coming of Jesus Christ on a, a, a still future date when Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. And, and we talked about that just a couple of weeks ago in our James series. And then finally, during this season, the, the church also tries to be attentive to the, the present coming of Jesus Christ. The, the reality that Jesus is present with us each and every day as, as he molds us and he forms us into his image through the Holy Spirit. And so some have poetically, I think, called Advent the time in between. Because as God's people, the, the church, we, we live in the time between Christ's first coming in and Bethlehem and, and his eventual second coming in glory. So it's good to keep those perspectives in mind. But over the next four weeks, we're going to much more simply uh, focus on the most traditional meaning of, of Advent, which is anticipating Jesus Christ's entrance into our world in the town of Bethlehem around 30 A.D., and we're going to build up to his incarnation uh, by, by looking at four different Old Testament prophets, four different Hebrew prophets, and the way that they prophesied about and the way that they foreshadowed and, and foretold the, the coming of, of Jesus. And so, if you're a, a big fan of the Advent season and the, the church calendar and such, and we have plenty of those folks at Lafayette, that backdrop should give you a lot to, to process and, and connect And if you're not so big a a fan of the seasons on the Christian calendar, this mini-series in practice will be a very straightforward uh, biblical look at four different passages from from four different prophets, and their prophetic messages that we're going to be listening to, of course, are are relevant to us during Advent, but around around the year uh, as well at all times. So let's reread uh, the first section of our our passage today. I'll tell you this is my favorite passage of the four we're going to look at. In the last couple of weeks, this passage has really been on my heart, and, and I think there is, is a word, uh, word from the Lord for, for the people of God this morning. Jeremiah begins uh, in verse 14, and he says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promise I made to the people of Israel and Judah. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line." And he will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it or he will be called the Lord, our righteous Savior. For this is what the Lord says. David will never fail to have a man to sit on the throne of Israel Nor will the Levitical priests ever fail to have a man to stand before me continually to to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to present sacrifices. So by the end of this passage, Jeremiah the the prophet is is going to have referenced three different covenants or or promises that, that God had made with his people throughout the course of history. The first covenant was that God would keep a Davidic king on the throne uh, into eternity. The second covenant was that God would uphold the Levitical priesthood that he had established. And the third covenant was that God would remain in right relationship with his chosen people, his holy nation, the people of Israel and Judah, the descendants of Abraham. So there are three different but pretty interrelated covenants. The king... The priesthood and and the, the, their identity as, as the people of God. Now, the focus of these uh, first few verses is, you probably notice, is on the promise of a Davidic king. And, and these words, this prophetic message, that we immediately connect to Jesus. These words are absolutely beautiful. I think, especially if we allow ourselves, given what we now know about Jesus, if we allow ourselves to read this Old Testament passage with Christian eyes, these are absolutely beautiful words. God, through Jeremiah, is, is promising the people then a future day when a righteous branch would sprout from David's line. And, and that this branch of David, as, as the king, will finally do what is just and right in the land. And that God's people will be saved and that they will, will live in safety. And, the, and then the translations differ here a little bit. But either the name of the king will be the Lord, our righteous Savior, or the name of Jerusalem itself, the city. The name of the city will be called the Lord, our righteous Savior. Again, this is all really beautiful imagery that points the people then to the eventual coming of Jesus about 600 years later after Jeremiah prophesies those words. Now, the second covenant is is briefly referenced in verse 18, and it is that the Levitical priesthood, will never fail to have a a high priest able to make sacrifices and offerings to God continually on behalf of the people. Now, I don't want to get too far into the the history behind the book of Jeremiah because it's probably boring for most of you always, but we also don't have King's kids uh, this morning, so the kids will be like, wow, big church really stinks. (laughs) Um, So I'm trying to skip over some of the history. But suffice it to say that these first two promises about the king and about the priesthood would have sounded too good to be true to the people of God in Jeremiah's day. Everything, if you know anything about the book of Jeremiah, everything was falling apart around them. We think everything is falling apart around us in our society today. It it does not match up to what the people of God were experiencing in that time and in that place. The monarchy, the priesthood, the temple, their very identity as a people were being threatened and were being destroyed. And Jeremiah's words to the people gathered before him would have sounded more than far-fetched. Jeremiah's prophetic hope was in conflict with the present realities that the people were facing. The, The light That Jeremiah was trying to to preach to the people. This message of light was in conflict with the, the darkness surrounding them. And that context, the fact that these people would have had a really hard time believing Jeremiah's words, that context makes me really love this next section of the passage even more. Let's keep reading verses 19 to 22. The word of the Lord again came to Jeremiah, and this is what the, and he said, this is what the Lord says. If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night so that day and night no longer come at their appointed time, then my covenant with David my servant and my covenant with the Levites who are priests ministering before me can be broken and David will no longer have a descendant to reign on his throne. Otherwise, I will make the descendants of David my servant and the Levites who minister before me as countless as the stars in the sky and as measureless as the sand on the seashore. I think this has to be one of the most, once we understand it a little bit, this has to be one of the most profound expressions of hope that I am aware of in, in the Old Testament prophets. God is saying that, that He is willing to break the covenants He has made with the people but only if they can make him break the covenants that he has made with the day and with the night. If the people, not God, if the people can make the day no longer come and the night no longer come at their appointed times, then God will consider giving up on a Davidic king. Only then will God consider giving up on the holy priesthood. Only then will God consider giving up on his chosen people. In other words, God is very poignantly saying, there is absolutely nothing you can do to make me break the covenants I have made with my people. God is challenging his people. I think he's almost mocking them. He's saying, can you make the sun not rise? Can can you make the sun not set? Because until you figure out how to make me, the creator of the day and night, the creator of, of the sun and the moon until you can make me break those covenants that are rooted in creation itself then i will not break these other covenants i have made with you contrary to everything else you're witnessing going on in your society right now such a proclamation from god would have been a very clear message of hope it would have been a very clear word of the lord it was attended it was intended as as good news, as, as gospel to the people of God gathered before Jeremiah. Despite everything they were experiencing to the contrary, God was assuring them that he would protect these three covenants that he had made with his people, and that essentially there was nothing they could do about it. So let's finish rereading this passage, and, and here he's going to shift a little bit. The focus is mostly going to be on the third covenantal promise that Abraham's descendants would be God's holy people, that they would be God's chosen nation. But you're going to see the same themes repeated. Verse 23 to 26, The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Have you not noticed that these people, the outsiders outside of Israel and Judah, that they're saying, the Lord has rejected the two kingdoms he chose. So they despise my people and no longer regard them as a nation. This is what the Lord says. This should sound familiar. If I have not made my covenant with day and night, and if I have not established the laws of heaven and earth, then, and only then, will I reject the descendants of Jacob and David, my servant, and will, I, and will not choose one of his sons to rule over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For I will restore their fortunes and have compassion on them. Because of all of that chaos and destruction and dysfunction that, that I've alluded to a little bit vaguely, because of all that going on that the nation of Israel had already experienced, the nation of Israel's already gone away by this point, and that now the nation of Judah is, is currently experiencing, the outsiders, the people that are looking in at God's covenant people, they're, they're beginning to claim that Yahweh had finally rejected his people. And I think they were probably excited about that, God has clearly given up on his people. Look at what happened to Israel. Look at what's currently happening uh, in in Judah. And and I think even that perhaps God's own people had, had come to believe that their God had rejected them. And to take that even one step further, Jeremiah himself had been threatening people, God's people and other parts of this very book, with God's judgment and with God's potential rejection if they don't change their own covenant-breaking ways. So everything pointed to the reality that God had rejected or that that God was currently in the process of rejecting his people. And yet, once again, God doubles down in this part of the passage, and he says, again, "...if I haven't made my covenant with day and night, if I am not the all-powerful one who established the laws of both heaven and earth, then and only then will I reject my chosen people." And until that happens, I will choose to restore their fortunes and to have compassion on these people. And so taking this passage as a whole, Jeremiah is is very clearly prophesying about some future day on which God would choose to act powerfully to to, to put a Davidic king back on the throne and to reestablish the Levitical priesthood and to restore the fortunes of his chosen people. And of course, we now know, 2,600 years later, what the people in Jeremiah's day did, did not fully know or, or understand. We know that God did not go on to break any of these three covenants, although they were not, of course, fulfilled in the way that the people at, at that time would have expected and anticipated. It was in the first coming of Jesus, in the incarnation, about 600 years later that we see God being faithful to all three of these covenants. Because Jesus Christ became that righteous branch which sprouted from David's line. He was indeed a Davidic king, though a very different type of king than the people were probably imagining or hoping for. And Jesus Christ became the great high priest capable of, of making holy sacrifices on behalf of the people continually before God. Though again, he was a very different kind of high priest than people imagine, and the the main sacrifice that Jesus offered on behalf of the people was very different but also much better than the people could have imagined. And finally, Jesus did indeed restore the fortunes of God's chosen people, but he not only kept that covenant that God had made with his original chosen people, but he expanded that covenant, calling all people of all nations and, and tribes and tongues to belong to the holy people, the chosen nation that we call, not Israel, not Judah, not America, but that we today call the church. And so, again, with Christianized, and in the series, I, I want us to read these Old Testament prophets with unapologetically Christianized. That's not always the best way to read the Old Testament, but we're going to do that in the series. With Christianized, we can very clearly see the powerful ways that these covenantal promises are eventually fulfilled by by the advent or by the coming of of Jesus the Christ, by his entrance into our our world and our history. But I want to return uh, for a moment to this, uh, if you can break my covenant imagery, and then we're going to move into a a time of communion uh, after the the, the sermon, because again, we don't have uh, King's Kids, so we can do that. Um, so we're going to return to this, if you can break my covenant and move into a time of communion. Uh, I am sure I had read this passage before, but I kept telling Lacey, I kept on a few others, that my mind was, was really getting blown by this, this statement of God twice, that it, if you can break my covenant, then I will break these other covenants. That, that promise there uh, was just so full of, of grace to me as I pondered it this week. And Jeremiah's Not the book of the Bible that I associate with with grace. I associate it with the exact opposite. And yet, this was one of the most poignant expressions of of grace that I I have seen in, in a little while. God's people, if you think about it, had not lived up to their side of any of these three covenants, or really to any covenant they had ever made with God. The monarchy was messed up big time, the priesthood was messed up big time. Their identity as a chosen nation, as a holy people, was messed up big time. Sin and chaos and dysfunction had prevented them repeatedly from living up to their side of the bargain. They were completely, they were completely unworthy of God's compassion. And God, on paper, had every right to break these three covenants and all the other covenants with his people. And yet, the image of God we get here is God almost sarcastically saying that there is nothing they can do to make him break these three eternal covenants. God may have to fulfill these covenants in a a much more complicated and costly way because of the people's actions. There's still repercussions, but God is saying that he will himself choose to be faithful to the Davidic line. He will be faithful to the Levitical priesthood. He will be faithful to Abraham's descendants no matter how unfaithful the people had chose, chosen to be and, and continued to choose to be. And again, that's what I would call grace. 2,600 years ago, all the way back in the book of Jeremiah, a book associated with judgment, we have this amazing expression of grace, of mercy, this amazing picture of, of a God and a, and in his loving kindness that defines the type of character he is. By challenging them, to break his covenant with day and night, God is guaranteeing that he will keep his covenants to his chosen people and that he will bestow upon them the blessings that they do not deserve. Now, maybe the reason this passage was hitting home so much was that we just spent a whole lot of time in the book of James. (laughs) And uh, I, I hope we handled James with theological care And I I, I hope along the way that we pointed out that there's plenty of grace in the book of James. But it's hard after spending 11 weeks in the book of James, and maybe you all experience this as well, it's hard not to pendulum swing a little bit back back to this side of of us earning our own salvation and and us having to work really hard to, to, to merit God's favor shown towards us. And that's because James sets such high standards for the people of God. He's He's explaining what it looks like for individuals and for communities to live faithfully to God in light of this salvation we've already been given. And I I believe and I affirm all of that practical wisdom that James presented to us. And yet, this prophetic promise of grace I think also has to remain at the forefront of our theological imagination. That yes, God has saved us and we live a certain way because of that. But Jeremiah provides this beautiful reminder of God's covenant keeping, despite the people's shortcomings, despite their failures, despite all of the things they did that, that on paper should have led God to, to give up on them. And so this combination of, of James and Jeremiah, just for me, really hits home this idea that, that we, as we sang earlier, we serve a God who keeps his covenant of love and that over the whole course of history, at all of these different stages, and we can dissect them, and we can break them up in different ways, but that at every point along the way, God had every right to say, sorry, Adam and Eve, you blew it. Sorry, Noah, you blew it. Sorry, if you've been in Sunday morning class, sorry, Judges, you really blew it. I come to Nate's class next week. God should have given up on the people after Judges chapter 19 to 21, and I don't say that lightly. God had every right after that episode we'll look at next week to say, I'm giving up on these people. God had every right through the monarchy, every right through the failed priesthood, and through the prophets who forsook him. He had every right to abandon his people, and yet it is perhaps in the incarnation most clearly that we see a God who will not give up on his people, and that's the gospel message. And so it's that gospel message, again, that that we reflect on uh, each and every week as we partake of, of communion, which is what we're going to do right now. The body and blood of Jesus Christ are the greatest reminders that we have of God's unmerited favor shown to us. The body and blood of Jesus Christ are the greatest reminders of the links to which God will go to restore his chosen people. It was in the breaking of his body, this scandalous contained body and blood. It was in the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood that Jesus became our king. And it was in the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood that Jesus became our high priest who could offer the greatest sacrifice on our behalf. And it was in the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood that God chose to renew and to restore his chosen people. And this, again, is the chosen people that we now call not Judah, not Israel, not America, not any one given nation, but the chosen people that God calls his church, the body of Christ. And so as we gather around the table, as we reflect on God's covenant with us all the way back to the days of Jeremiah, we're reminded that the body and blood of Jesus Christ is the ultimate ultimate act that shows us that God will keep his covenant of love. That he created with his people thousands of years ago. Let's pray. Dear God, as we partake of the body of your Son, Jesus Christ, we are reminded of your covenant of love, this covenant that you created in different forms with the people of God for thousands of years, God, all the way back to Adam and all the different people since Adam that that you have entered into relationship with. And God, we're reminded of the ways that we as, as humans repeatedly fell short of those covenants in the ways that we can draw near to to you and to your son, Jesus, and to your holy presence through the breaking of Jesus' body and through the shedding of his blood. And we partake of of that body at this time. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Dear God, as we partake of the blood now of your son, Jesus, we again remember your covenant of love from the times of Jeremiah to, to Lafayette Church of Christ today. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. We're going to close out our, our service, I think, with, with three final songs. And uh, Jack and Kara will head to the prayer room. So again, if you uh, need to pray with someone, if you want to respond to, to this uh, message, you can go back to the prayer room and, enjoy, uh, and join them. Uh, but again, my, my prayer for us as God's people today is that as we sing, as we go out and live our lives, uh, as we try to be faithful to God, Uh, in our own day and in our own way, that we will remember uh, the God who keeps his covenants uh, that that he has, has just blessed us with for thousands of years. At this time, let's stand and sing.